Welcome to Innovating Clinical Trials, a special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists' Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. Until recently, the model used for traditional randomized clinical trials has not changed since it was first introduced in 1948. Now, transformation is underway. Speed and efficiency need to improve as many patients cannot wait over a decade for new, potentially life-saving medicines, and trial participants need to better reflect the whole patient population. Because clinical trials are complex and multidisciplinary, there is not a single, simple solution. What does innovation in clinical trials look like? In this series, host Rob Lenz, Amgen's Senior Vice President of Global Development and experts leading next-generation clinical trials, explore trends and drivers in design and execution to improve trial quality and safety, decrease costs, and improve predictability, reliability, and speed. Cancer is one therapeutic area where patients simply can't wait the conventional 10 or 12 years for a new therapy. For these patients, time is of the essence and improved access to faster clinical trials can mean the difference between having a new, potentially life-saving medicine available and it being too late. In this episode, I talked to David Rabin, Vice President of Global Development Oncology at Amgen, about the next generation of oncology trial design and execution. The last decade has witnessed tremendous innovations happening across the clinical trial space. And it's often the case that oncology trials are on the leading edge. Given the imminent lethality of a number of cancers, there's a strong driver to continue to innovate in oncology, and not just in the basic biologic mechanisms underlying cancer, but also innovating in how we develop medicines. So it really seems like a great time to be in oncology drug development. And Dave, you're right in the thick of that. You've had a rich and varied career, radiation oncologist, you're a translational scientist, and now you're in oncology drug development. So how does that, you know, your collective experiences impact the way that you think about innovating clinical trials for cancer patients? Well, Rob, first of all, thank you so much for having me. And thank you for asking about my career because it is different. You don't normally see radiation oncologists coming into the pharmaceutical industries. My career and my curiosity were stimulated as a young man watching my father treat cancer patients. He was the chair of radiation oncology at Wake Forest. I actually have an identical twin brother, Adam Raven, and both of us decided to explore the field of radiation oncology because honestly, we had never met a doctor like my dad who simply couldn't wait to get to work every day. As we got into medical school, we initially were thinking about being surgeons and ended up wanting to follow in his footsteps. I ended up training at Johns Hopkins Hospital where my twin brother trained at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. While at Hopkins, my translational curiosity really blossomed when I started to hear about this epidermal growth factor expression signaling on cancer cells, emerging science around TP53 mutations. And so when I finished a residency, I joined the faculty at the University of Alabama at Birmingham, in part because it, it, they were offering me a chance to delve into the EGFR story. So it really intrigued me, the possibilities of using biology to enhance radiation in patients with locally advanced cancers like head and neck cancer, where we could look at a drug called cetuximab, which was an anti-EGFR antibody. 
We conducted the first in human phase one, which led directly to a phase three study, improving local control survival using cetuximab with radiation. And that was it for me. I knew, Rob, that I wanted to have a career that included translational research. In 1998, where I joined the faculty of Colorado, working alongside an amazing mentor, Paul Bunn, an expert in lung cancer, an incredible translational oncologist. And, and we together explored the EGFR pathway with small molecules that led from the bench into the clinic in phase one and two trials. With you, your brother, and your father all being in radiation oncology, there's clearly a genetic element uh, underlying your interest in, in cancer. And that's a great segue uh, to, to start contemplating things like the genetics underlying cancer. One of the greatest advances in oncology drug development and clinical care has been the progress and precision approaches enabled by rapid advances in understanding the underlying biology, including the cancer genetics, that then allows us to incorporate those basic understandings into the clinical trial, enabling things like precision medicine, where patients are selected, say, for a targeted therapy based on the somatic mutations that they harbor in their tumors. In your perspective, how much progress has been made in that precision medicine approach in oncology in comparison to five to 10 years ago in terms of clinical trials? I was training at Hopkins, didn't really think that we could have a patient-centric or a niche cancer approach to things. But when we think about what we have in the arsenal now, it's outstanding to see where we've come over the last five to 10 years. A majority of the medications that have been approved in the last five years have been precision-based drugs. Some of these drugs are not only just hitting the primary target, but they're hitting the resistant areas as well, allowing patients to stay on these drugs longer. We know that monotherapy is not the end-all be-all and certainly not an advanced disease. Many of these cancers are going to develop resistant mechanisms. It's an exciting time to utilize precision medicine, maybe to amplify immune-modifying drugs, as well as to create that long-lasting systemic benefit. One of the key enablers of precision medicine and oncology has been the ability to biopsy tumors and assess for the somatic mutations that can direct the therapy. But not all tumors are easily biopsied. The molecular profile of the tumor can change over time with therapy. New driver mutations can occur over time, often requiring rebiopsy. And those present practical challenges and even potential risks to the patient. Now, one area of promising research involves the ability to detect circulating tumor DNA in the blood, also referred to as ctDNA which removes the need for invasive tissue biopsies. So what promise do you see in the use of ctDNA as it relates to drug development? And what are some of the technical limitations? There's so many different ways that we could approach using ctDNA or circulating tumor DNA-based assays. They're under considerable scrutiny now by the FDA, and the FDA brought out that first white paper on how we should be thinking about ctDNA and, and how we're going to need to get comprehensive data in many patients to be able to say with conviction that this is going to be an important part of how we analyze patient response to therapies and perhaps lead to more accelerated approvals and utilize this not just in advanced disease, but in earlier stage disease. So I think the assays are going to continue to improve from a sensitivity and specificity because you, you do get a lot of background noise and, and the issues around false positives, false negatives can really impact how our clinical trial designs may be effective or not. But I think this is gonna be an amazing thing to quickly determine response. What an amazing thing to select 
which patients are going to benefit from which drugs to get feedback much earlier in patients with earlier stage disease rather than waiting seven to 10 years for outcomes. Another area, Dave, where oncology trials are leading the way is innovative designs. We're seeing significant increases in the use of things like basket trials, umbrella trials. Maybe you can provide an overview of those and then what the differences are and how you've seen them applied best to date. Let's clarify the difference between basket trials, which refer to trial designs in which a targeted therapy is evaluated across multiple diseases that have common alterations. These trials are typically not randomized. They're typically more exploratory and a median size of maybe around 200 patients. Many in the past five years investigated only a single agent, so maybe not so efficient. The majority of these trials are typically done in the U.S. You'll see some in, in the U.K. as well, but they're not as broadly used, certainly not in underserved areas. Umbrella trials, on the other hand, are also generally exploratory. They have had randomized arms. They look to evaluate multiple targeted therapies for a single disease that is typically stratified into different subgroups because that single disease has different parts. You know, the median number of interventions is typically around four or five, and the median sample size is typically a little bit larger than the basket trials, around 350 patients. Platform trials, very, very popular now, continues to explode, is typically randomized phase three studies. So there's many more patients and the durations can last a lot longer in terms of therapy. You're talking about 700, 800 patients here. What I like about platform trials is its flexibility. It can add in more arms and has the ability to drop ineffective arms. We're seeing a massive uptake in these kind of trials. And I can see this accelerating now to look at combinatorial approaches of cancer drugs. So what's the point of these trial designs? And I think it's because we're seeing cancer becoming so much more fragmented. We're discovering new mutations. It's unrealistic to use old school conventional trial designs to interrogate genomic-based cancer mutations. There's a Morpheus trial that, that looks at very small, randomized registrational trials in specific areas, like patients who have failed immunotherapy, to quickly interrogate in an umbrella fashion, as mentioned earlier, the opportunity to quickly look from a biomarker-based perspective, whether patients are responding to the standard of care plus drug A or drug B or drug C. But even more interesting to me is the ability to potentially do this in earlier stage cancer. You know, Rob, I had a person once tell me the best type of cancer to cure is the one you can't see rather than the one you can see. So molecular profiling and these types of platform studies have moved into earlier stage settings where now we're talking about truly changing the course of a patient's life. We have trials looking prospectively at CTNA to determine the optimal routes of therapy, and this could provide huge advantages for patients to know quickly if a therapy is actually working before we see that gross failure by imaging. This is for many companies, for academicians, for even community-based centers to test out new drugs rapidly here. We as drug developers need to be thinking more broadly about how we drug develop in parallel going after earlier stage cancers as well as late stage cancers, because those patients have different setups, different tumor burdens, different immune microenvironments. So I, I personally like the thought of using biomarker-driven basket and umbrella trials to test out novel combinations because there's going to be so many patients who develop resistance to monotherapy-based approaches. You clearly articulated that one of the major drivers of these various innovative trial designs is speed, efficiency. There's really no other area where speed is more important than on oncology. 
where the unmet need is so huge. But we also know that only about 5% of patients with cancer actually participate in a clinical trial. There's numerous barriers like overly complex protocols, lack of having conveniently located trial sites. What are some of the other areas, Dave, that you think of having an impact in accelerating clinical trials and broadening that aperture so that more patients can participate? Decentralized trials is one way to think about bringing the trial to the patient, certainly in an area of intense interest within the FDA, within patient advocacy groups, major cancer organizations. Correct me if I'm wrong here, just about everyone in this world lives within about 30 minutes of a Starbucks, yet they have to drive hours and hours to get to a major cancer center. Now there's many decentralized trials that are expanding in the U.S. that offer greater inclusivity. They can help identify rare patients by connecting a local oncologist to the study investigator. They can utilize third-party vendors that can facilitate these key connections between mobile nursing, research coordinators, get them genomic testing of wearable devices for real-time patient monitoring coupled with telemedicine, all to really improve the patient experience. The data actually seems to show that patients who go into clinical trials have better outcomes in general because they're monitored and followed so carefully. Another interesting area is this concept around time toxicity. It's the time spent in coordinating care for the patient, the travels to the clinics, undergoing multiple tests, all for a modest gain in survival in many instances. The amount of time spent receiving cancer care can be really substantial. So can we use decentralized trials as an example to reduce this burden here? And then, you know, that gets back to the complexity of trials here. We've got to find ways to reduce clinical trial complexity. The patient advocacy groups are demanding this. When we look at our inclusion and exclusion criteria, some of it is so outdated. How do we reduce requirements? How do we reduce the need for unnecessary tissue biopsies? How do we reduce the need to visit clinics? How do we improve data collection methods and requirements? Really facilitate a patient actually wanting to go on to a clinical trial or And the investigators actually wanting to open that trial. As it goes around to the platform-based approaches that you were mentioning, can we again look at this as a way to to attack specific diseases through tumor agnostic approaches, utilize TTNA as an example here, and streamline many of our trial designs, making them much leaner. We have a lot less patients going into these trials because they're much more focused and specific. It's really a coordinated approach with intense dialogue with our FDA partners and our patient advocacy groups to get us more clarified and simplified trial designs that are going to be much more cost-effective and impactful for the patient. So Dave, this point of reduced complexity is, is absolutely critical. Unfortunately, I think all industry trends are heading in the opposite direction. There's a fair amount of data showing that. The complexity of our trials is is not going down, but it's going up. One of the areas that, that gives me enthusiasm is how do we more fully utilize the existing data sources that we have, right? We have unprecedented access now to various real-world data sets to do things like help us understand what the implications are of our inclusion-exclusion criteria on a population. So appreciating what the implications are in restricting a large portion of that patient population. We can now use that real-world data and make those trade-offs and understand what those are in real time as we're designing the study and putting in place an operationally feasible 
protocol. And in the other area is using those real world data sources to identify where those patients are. Because to your point, the majority of them do not live within 30 minutes of investigative site, right? How can we employ the decentralized trial toolkit to, to reach out to those patients once they've been identified in an anonymized way and relieve them of the burden of having to come all the way in to a brick and mortar clinical trial site? So Dave, as, as you look into your crystal ball, you know, what do you see as important future directions and trends in, in oncology clinical trials? I'm really excited about how we're going into earlier stages of cancer in a parallel drug development approach. We really want to detect cancers, treat cancers when they're way earlier, because we know that's where the, the real bang for the buck comes. I'm excited about combinatorial approaches because cancers are not going to be solved by typical monotherapy approaches. They're just too clever. They're, they're resilient, they're rebellious, and they can get around our roadblocks. I see us continuing to customize our patients here. So I'm really excited about CTNA to understand from a longitudinal perspective how patients might benefit from our drugs and quickly get away from drugs that are not working. That's a game change for patients. So I see all these things evolving over the next five years in a very robust fashion. Well, there's no doubt that the pace of biologic insights and oncology has accelerated. I mean, I think the key is going to be for those of us on the clinical trial side to ensure that the clinical trial methodology, the advances, the operational considerations to allow interrogation or decision medicine, combinatorial approaches, keep pace with those biologic insights. Absolutely. And I, I just can't wait to see how things are going to evolve. Thank you so much. Dave, thanks for joining me today. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'll say I feel even more optimistic about oncology clinical development than I did before our, our discussion today. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this final episode of Innovating Clinical Trials. And thanks again to David Rabin, Vice President of Global Development Oncology at Amgen. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Innovating Clinical Trials Q&A webinar discussion on September 28, 2022. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. To learn about our next podcast series, The Human Data Era, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements, including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.